So tonight, the title of our teaching and conversation time is What is Truth? Wow. Heavy. The, um, the era that we live in is increasingly being described, I don't know if you've seen this, but it is increasingly being described as post-truth. We now apparently live in a post-truth era. Uh, and it's also said that history is written by the winners or written by the victors. And so it kind of seems to me at the moment that post-truth is almost a strategy of those who hold privilege and power. It's a strategy of people who are either in authority or seeking authority because the reality is if, is if truth is whatever you define it to be, then it becomes very easy to justify and to propagate your ideology. And I think that's potentially a dangerous thing because what happens is that this post-truth and this ideology comes at the cost of those without privilege and it comes at the cost of those without power. And so tonight, uh, I'd like us to begin to kind of explore the concept of truth. The Gospel of John, chapter 18, actually poses the question, what is truth? And I'm going to read it to you. It says this, John 18, 28 to 38. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now, it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. It's a flimsy argument at best. Pilate said, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea? Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied, Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders, but now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? retorted Pilate. And with this, he went out again to the Jews gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. What is truth? We don't know how Pilate frames that question. We can kind of guess that maybe he's being rhetorical, that he's being dismissive. Maybe he says it with quite an exasperated tone. Maybe it's a statement of defeat. Maybe he doesn't know with truth and he grapples with truth. But regardless, I think it's a question that is central to the core of our humanity. It's a, it's a question that whether we physically ask that question of ourselves or not, it kind of speaks to our search for meaning. It, it speaks to our search for why. Why do we exist? What is the purpose of life? Is there a purpose to life? What is truth? So the basic definition of truth is very simple. It's the quality or state of being true, whatever true may be. It's a fact or belief that is accepted as true. So, you know, it's true for me to say that if I take this pen and I drop this pen, it will fall to the ground. 
That's a true statement. And here's the evidence. There you go. I let go. Gravity takes effect. The pen drops to the ground. Gravity makes that statement true. And I have evidence to back it up that that's a true statement. But gravity's not truth. So what is truth? And some would argue in a post-truth world that all truth is relative. Um, an author by the name of uh, Anais Nin wrote, we don't see things as they are, we see them as we are. Which is to say that we essentially view everything from our own perspective. Now that's not to suggest necessarily that the author is stating that there is no absolute truth, but it does propose the idea that we can only know our own version of the truth. So one person's fake news is another person's truth. And fake news is a pretty popular term at the moment. It's uh, abounding in, in all sorts of conversations. And it's a phrase and idea which wasn't coined by President Trump, but has clearly been popularized by President Trump. And in my understanding of the term, is essentially now used to describe anything or any information that the Trump administration kind of disagrees with, or that essentially paints them in a negative light, even if it's something that they've said themselves. It's just fake news. And so we kind of live in this paradigm now where evidence doesn't seem to matter, especially if the evidence is inconvenient, especially if the evidence conflicts with whatever ideology it is that we hold to and all the various political and economic ideologies. And so things like where there is absolute evidence, things like the bleaching of the barrier reef, things like uh, the build-up of carbon in our atmosphere, the fact that um, refugees uh, contribute more to the economy and have lower rates of crime than uh, established residents are all kind of inconvenient evidences of truth. We used to have this thing, and Mandy would be able to talk to this, we used to have this thing called evidence-based research which is research based on evidence, right? Yeah. And um, now I think we just have thrown that out, particularly in political circles. We, we don't have evidence-based policy or evidence-based research. We have evidence-free policy. And so political parties just align their policies with whatever their ideologies are, regardless of whether there's evidence for that or not. Whether there's data to support it or not. And so, I think this seeming absence of evidence is driving a number of shifts in our society. It's, it's driving an increase in atheism, for example. Former pastors, I've seen it time and time again in the last few years, former pastors, former ministers, former Christians are increasingly declaring that they don't believe in God anymore. And I kind of don't necessarily take that at face value because I think that often the evidence that they cite for that, the evidence that they cite in those declarations is very much based on a, on a binary, judgmental view of God or a very kind of reductionist understanding of God in the gospel. And what happens when we reduce the gospel to simply sin and redemption, when we reduce the gospel to pie in the sky when we die, to kind of coin a phrase, then we miss a lot of stuff. We miss things like renewal and we miss uh, an understanding of what it might mean if we were to bring heaven to earth. We, we miss 
an exploration and an understanding of love in its purest form. We, we, we miss a lot of things. And in that context, I absolutely understand. I completely understand how atheism is the outcome. When we reduce God to an angry, distant being just waiting to determine whether people spend eternity in eternal torment or ethereal bliss, I can see where people draw that conclusion. When, uh, you know, we draw such binary conclusions, then it's understandable that people reject that notion of God. And so I think that one of the most important things that we can do as a faith community, which is what we do, is, is to provide space for difficult conversations, is to provide space for conversations that often we are want to shy away from or feel threatened by. And, and I think the church, broadly speaking, doesn't often do that well. But we need to be able to share our doubts along with our faith. We need to be able to share uncertainty along with certainty. And when we become rigid and fundamental about who and how we describe and engage with God, then we, we create this position where people either believe X or they don't believe X. And there's kind of no gray in the middle. They're the only options that are presented. And so that's why the teaching and conversation time is so central to who we are as the found community. It's one of our central aspects of our Sunday gathering where we're open about discussing issues and ideas that are complex and are intersectional and don't necessarily have easy answers. And I wonder, I don't know, but I wonder if more churches and more faith communities created those safe spaces I wonder whether people would be so fundamental in their atheism. I wonder whether people would be so determined that there isn't a God because they had the opportunity to explore what God might be. So what is truth? What is the evidence for truth? The, the author of the Gospel of John actually writes a lot about truth. It's an underlying theme that, that runs throughout the text. And, and the, the narrative... Uh, of John around truth suggests two things, and I'm going to use big words, but I'll explain them. Um, uh, it suggests that truth is ontological, big word, but basically all it means is, is an understanding of the nature of being. So it suggests that truth uh, is part of the nature of who we are. It's part of the nature of being, that, that truth brings meaning and form to our existence. And the other thing that the narrative suggests is that truth is theological. That is, truth is essentially part of the nature of God. And so in John 14, 6, Jesus is quoted as saying, it's a relatively famous passage, that he is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. And so Jesus essentially declares himself to be the incarnation of truth. And so in this statement, Truth is not proposed as an idea. Truth is not proposed as a what. Truth is proposed as a who. What does that mean? Why might that be important? And he actually goes on in further passages to kind of qualify and explain that. He goes on to say in John 17 that we are to be sanctified by truth, which essentially means to be set apart by truth which often taken out of context, then manifests itself in some kind of justification for moralizing as the church, for being uh, the barometer of truth for society. 
Christians and the church often want to um, ensure that society knows the truth about sexuality and the truth about marriage and, and the truth about euthanasia and drugs and, and the right of men to rule and, and uh, just wars, except this is actually not the purpose that Jesus articulates for truth. Jesus clearly articulated two purposes for truth. One is unity and the other is love. So Jesus states that the purpose of truth is unity and love. That's it. Nothing deeper. There's nothing more profound. There's nothing more uh, greater call than unity and love. And so essentially, truth is, the purpose of truth is to reconcile all people to God and to each other. And in doing so, in such a way that it embodies and essentially echoes this kind of profound love. And the manifestation of truth in the form of Jesus was consistently, and we see this throughout the Gospels, and vehemently on the side of the poor, on the side of the excluded, on the side of the ignored and the disenfranchised and the exploited. And he was on their side when it damaged his reputation, and he was on their side when, uh, if he was living in this day and age, it certainly would have damaged his earning potential, and he was on their side uh, to the point that it removed any chance that he was going to rise through the political and the religious ranks of power. He was on the side of the bullied and the marginalised and the disadvantaged and those who were disadvantaged by a system that was essentially designed to benefit everyone at the top and disadvantage everyone at the bottom. And so he lifted them up and he led them out and he led the forgotten and the abused and the socially and the economically and the politically excluded and he rejected individualism, and he rejected self-interest, and he rejected greed, and instead he embraced justice and inclusion and peace and equality, no matter what the cost to him. And so I kind of draw this conclusion that if Jesus is, as he says he is, truth, then I reckon that that is the type of truth that he speaks to and embodies. I'm going to wrap up in a second. One John Chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, which Mina read, says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. So if God is truth, and if God is love, then it stands to reason in my small, human, limited brain that truth is love, and love is truth. And so if I apply that thinking, rightly or wrongly, to the verse that I just read, it says this, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from truth. Everyone who loves has been born of truth and knows truth. Whoever does not love does not know truth, because truth is love and love is truth. Who or what is truth to you? For me, Jesus as the incarnation of truth makes sense. It makes sense to me because in that I understand the character of God through Jesus. I understand what it might mean that God is love through Jesus. I understand how to love other people through Jesus selflessly for the sake of the common good and with a desire for, for all things to be renewed. And so... Uh, to use those big words again, ontologically and theologically, if, if truth is love, then I think that makes sense. 
if the nature of being, if the nature of God is love, then I can subscribe to that truth. And I think it's from here that I can begin to imagine a world in which ultimate truth is a love that is so powerful and so consuming and so unifying that it's a love that permeates our very existence and draws us into relationship and draws us into community. That's what I think.